Dallas Willard, one of my favorite quotes, you might, write, you might write it down. He says this, he says, the Christian life is what you do when you realize you can do nothing. The Christian life is what you do when you realize you can do nothing. What Willard means by that is, is that Christianity, true Christianity, the gospel of Christianity is, is not a message of addition. It's not something that you uh, see and you go, you know, that would, that would really look great in my front room, you know, I just, that, would, that would really spice up my life. It just would make a great addition to the things that I already believe in. That's not Christianity. If that's what you think Christianity is, you've found something that's not Christianity. Christianity is the thing you do when you realize you can do nothing else. Christianity is the thing you believe when you realize there's no other answer. Christianity is, it, 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 the true, true Christianity, the gospel, is the crisis point you have when you realize that there is nowhere else to run but Christ. There is only one way. And then the true gospel comes in that, in that package, in that package only, and that's what Dallas Willard means. You know, it's interesting, I was talking to a friend the other day, uh, him and his wife, are, they're just getting older, and, and their bodies are just rebelling um, and just thing after thing after thing, hospital visit after hospital visit, and we were just kind of dialoguing about that. And we were kind of like, man, why, why is that? That as we grow, we actually become more and more and more dependent. Have you ever noticed that? You would think that as you mature as a human, you would become less dependent, right? Because you're older. But actually, you end life the same way that you start life. In fact, in many ways, you kind of end like a baby, don't you? I mean, you, you, you end completely dependent. You end your life losing the ability to have all of the freedoms and all of the controls and all of the power that you had when you were maybe in your middle age or when you were younger. It's a process of undoing growing old is. And I was just commenting to my friend. I said, you know, I wonder, I wonder if it isn't maybe the, the primary lesson that God is trying to teach us in life is that we are dependent is that we don't have any strength, is that we actually are in need, that we actually are cripples, ultimately, that we are needy, those that have needs. And, and, and if, if us growing old is not actually God's grace helping us to understand the most important lesson we need to understand before we die, and that is that we have need. We have deep, eternal, utter need for grace. Second Samuel 9, let's read it together. And then I'll just make a, a few points and we'll close. Second Samuel 9, David said, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I might show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? He said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan, he is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Emiel at Lodabar. Then the king David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Emiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, behold, I am your servant. Can I just get all the kids right now to say Mephibosheth? Can you do that for me? Go ahead. One, two, three. The, this side was way more enthusiastic. Can I get everybody really? One, two, three. The best word to say in the Bible. Seriously, love it. Totally lost my place. 
Anybody? You get a brownie point if you know where I left off. I'm just going to start in verse 7. David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of, of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for, dead, for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet. Okay, what does this story have for us that's of value? It's kind of random. I just want to point out three things, and each of these three things remind us of a gospel reality. So why don't you write them down? I'll give them to you all right now. The first thing is I want you to see the cripple. The second thing is I want you to see the credit. And the third thing is I want you to see the kindness. Okay, the cripple, the credit, and the kindness. First, I want you to see the cripple. What's this story about? The story is about a young man named Mephibosheth who was the son of Jonathan, who was the son of Saul. Mephibosheth was technically the heir to the throne of Saul. And because of that, because he was the throne heir to the son of of Saul, he was also um, by nature the enemy of David. If you remember, Saul spent most of his life uh, pursuing David, trying to kill David, trying to take out David. Okay, so, so Jonathan, his son Mephibosheth, literally would have been the heir to that throne. But here's what happened to Mephibosheth. When he was a kid... He was five years old, and when his father and his grandfather were off at war with the Philistines, we read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 4, um, his father and his grandfather were killed in battle. And news came back to his caretaker. She picks up Mephibosheth, and in a hurry, assuming that David uh, would have uh, showed up immediately to to try to uh, terminate and eliminate anyone in, in, in Saul's family, she picks up in a hurry Mephibosheth. She runs, falls on Mephibosheth, and breaks both of his legs. And from that point forward, he was a cripple. The, the legs never healed correctly. Okay, so you have, you have this young boy, five years old, who starts his life, before he's even really old enough to remember, he starts his life with his father and his grandfather being dead. He starts his life in fear because, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but what do you do if you're a king um, and, 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 and uh, if you're the, the new administrative king that comes in and the old administrative king has a son or a grandson who's heir to the throne? What do you do? You take him out. So Mephibosheth knows that. So he instantly, immediately goes into exile. He goes into hiding. Uh, He doesn't want anyone to know. So he's literally a cripple with no ability to care for himself, no hope, no future, no family. And he knows that if David were to find out about him, there's a good chance David would take his life. What a terrible existence. What a terrible life for Mephibosheth. This, This was his life. This was how he grew up. Hopeless, helpless, in a threatening situation. But what I want you to see, the first thing I want you to see here is I want you to see yourself in this picture. 
I want you to see yourself in this picture because this, this picture of Mephibosheth, it should remind us of the spiritual state of all of us apart from Christ. He finds himself in this position where he's unable to care for himself, unable to work for himself, unable to produce what he needs. He finds himself an orphan. He finds himself alone in the same way that Christ found us. Flip over really quick. Uh, Paul picks this up, Ephesians chapter 2. He gives a really clear definition, actually, of, of what our status was before we met Christ, assuming we have. You were dead in trespasses, Ephesians 2.1. You were dead in the trespasses and the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. How much, how much spiritual activity can a dead person produce? Very little. How much life can a dead person produce? Very little. So Paul says that before Christ, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in, once you in, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, uh, like, a, like, a, like a corpse, just flowing according to a course. No, no ability to swim upstream. No ability or interest in pushing back against the, cor the current. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, wrath like the rest of mankind. This is the state that we found in ourselves before Christ. But that's not what I want you to see in this passage. I want, I want you to understand the desperation and the despair of Mephibosheth. But what I really want you to see is what happens. Okay, I want you to see what happens. The second thing is I want you to see the credit. I want you to see the credit. What happens is this, the unexpected. Anybody that would read this passage would be blown away and shocked with what David does. David goes... And he, he seeks out Mephibosheth. He said, is there anyone in Jonathan's house that still remains? I want to show them kindness. He seeks out Mephibosheth. He takes him. And he literally gives him all of the estate, all of the inheritance of his grandfather Saul and his father Jonathan. And then it gets even crazier. He literally sets him at the king's table, the most honorable place that anyone in all of Israel could live. He sets him at the king's table uh, forever. So this, this, this young man goes from being a cripple with no hope and no ability to produce any security in his life to being literally the adopted son, essentially, of David, sitting at the table, at the right hand, if you will, of David with his needs taken care of, everything paid in full. He went from being nothing to everything. He went from being a nobody to somebody. He went from being hopeless to having the greatest hope. Now, you have to stop and ask this question. Why would David do this? Is he just a nice guy? Is that the point of the text? Is, this a, is the application of first Sam, or Second Samuel 9 that we go, oh, we should be nice guys? Is that the point? Or is there something else going on here? Why would David do this? Uh, well, I'll tell you why David didn't do it. He didn't do it because of anything Mephibosheth did. He didn't do it because of anything Mephibosheth could have done or would have done. He's a cripple, Remember? He has no ability to pay back. He has no ability to produce. That Harley's just making this even more intense, right? It's just really helping me preach right now. Why are you yelling? There's a Harley. Okay. Keeps going. Okay. He, he has no ability to pay this back. So the question is, why would David do this? Not because of anything Mephibosheth has done. And, and let, me, let me suggest this to you. Why would David do this? Because in salvation, write this down. In salvation... It always starts with a covenant. Salvation always starts with a covenant. See, back in, in 2 Samuel, or pardon me, 1 Samuel chapter 20, David made a covenant with Jonathan. Do you remember that? They were the best of friends. 
They had a deep, abiding affection for one another. And even though Jonathan's father, Saul, was bent on destroying David, David loved Jonathan, and Jonathan loved David. And they made a covenant with one another, not only to to, to care for each other always, but they made a covenant to care for each other's kids. In a sense, they became godfathers to each other's kids. In a sense, they, 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 they covenanted to, to, to love and to pour out blessing on their generation and the generation's generations. The beauty of the grace that David shows Mephibosheth is that it all started with a covenant. It all started with a covenant. And, and you, do you know where your salvation started? It started with a covenant. You know, when you think about the fact that you're saved, where, where, where do you think that began? Does your mind go to the moment that maybe you said yes to an altar call or the moment that you got baptized? If it is, you're thinking far too small. Okay, um, when did salvation, when did, when did the source of your salvation begin? What was the, 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 the conception of it? It certainly wasn't when you said yes. Um, well, maybe, was it the cross? Was it when Jesus said it is finished? Well, that was part of it, but, but if that's what you're thinking, it's still certainly too small. Well, maybe it was Genesis chapter 3 when God said he's going to crush the head of the snake and destroy Satan. Maybe that was when salvation was conceived. Well, I suggest to you that it was actually much earlier than that. See, Mephibosheth, he's benefiting from the grace of a covenant that happened before he was even born. Isn't that brilliant? He's benefiting from the grace of something that took place before he even came into existence. Flip over with me to Ephesians chapter 1. This is a beautiful picture of the reality of God's covenantal grace. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy, set apart, and blameless, pure, before him, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself. I suggest to you that the salvation that you so enjoy as Mephibosheth, as a cripple, as someone unable to spiritually produce life, that that salvation actually started within the Godhead before creation even came. That that that, that was a covenant of love between God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit. And because God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit made a covenant of love that through creation, God had you on his mind, always. The the reason that David has such love for Mephibosheth is because he made a covenant with, with someone else. But that's not all. Not only did he make a covenant with Jonathan, what David is doing in this moment is he is crediting all of his love, all of his favor that Jonathan has worked for as a friend to David. He's crediting all that to Mephibosheth. Do you see that? He is, to use the theological term, he is imputing the works and the friendship and the loyalty and the goodness of Jonathan. He's imputing it to Mephibosheth. And what's so interesting, David doesn't even know him. David doesn't even know Mephibosheth. He doesn't know if he deserves this honor. He doesn't know if, he's, if, he, if he should honor him. He hasn't, he hasn't done anything to deserve it. What David is doing is he is imputing the, the honor and the credit of Jonathan to his son. What a beautiful picture of the gospel. You know, that's what Christ does for us. He literally gives us his perfect life. The honor that the father sees when he looks at you, the pleasure that the father sees when he looks at you, 
the joy that the Father sees when he looks at you, it's literally like as if he was looking at Christ. When he sees you, he sees the imputed, perfect righteousness of Jesus, his son. In the same way that, John, that David would have looked at Mephibosheth, his crippled boy, and seen his father, Jonathan. God the Father sees Christ when he looks at you. Isn't that beautiful? That's the gospel. It's the gospel. Mephibosheth didn't earn it. He didn't work for it. It was given as a gift because of the credential and the works of another man. You are saved by grace that God has accredited righteousness and perfection and his affection on you because of the life of another man. That other man is Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? But I want you to see the third thing because, see, if we think of salvation and we think of the gospel as only being contractual, then we're missing the beauty of it. See, David didn't just love Mephibosheth because he had to. He didn't just show kindness to Mephibosheth because... It's really hard to say that word, by the way. Have you noticed, Mephibosheth? Uh, David didn't just show kindness to Mephibosheth because he had to, because he was bound by some kind of a legal contract. There's, there's, there's a deeper reason. There's a more eternal reason. I want you to see it in verse 1 of chapter 9. David said, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him what? Kindness. You see, David had this desire to show kindness. He had a desire to pour out kindness. Well, where did he get that desire? Where did he get the, where did he get the bank of kindness to spend on Mephibosheth? Well, it actually says in verse 3, the king said, Is there still not someone in the house of Saul that I might show him what? The kindness of God. You see, David was a recipient of vast kindness. God was kind to David. And because God was kind to David, David was kind to Mephibosheth. That's how gospel uh, multiplication works. God's kind to us, it makes us kind to others. God was kind to David, David was kind to Mephibosheth. What I want you to see here is that at the very heart of the gospel is not a God who is justly honoring a contract, although that is part of it. What I want you to see is that the very heart of the gospel is a king who is kind. A king who has a desire to go show kindness. You notice David wanted to show kindness before he even knew there was anyone to show kindness to? The good news from Mephibosheth was birthed out of a desire to be kind from a good king. Did you know that the gospel, at the very heart of it, even prior to the covenant that God made before creation, even prior to that was a kind and loving God who was fully and perfectly sustained within his own Trinitarian love, desiring for that Trinitarian love and kindness to be poured out and to connect on a creation, on an individual. Salvation starts where? It starts with the kindness of God. He's so kind. And you know, I can't help but think about what it would have been like for Mephibosheth to come to the table of David, assuming that David was going to be like Saul. You know, all he ever knew was Saul. All he ever knew was Saul, and Saul was a tyrant. <laughs> you know, I mean, he had, he had his moments. But Saul, he was an insecure leader. You ever been around an insecure leader? All they can think about is keeping their power. All they can think about is keeping their image. All they can think about is what people think of them. Saul was an insecure leader. Saul was so insecure that he literally killed his most loyal man, which was or desired to kill his most loyal man, which was David. Mephibosheth grew up. Um, you know, at least for five years of his life, he would have had a memory of Saul, and he, he would have thought Saul—that's what kings are like. Kings are like Saul. 
So when he gets the call that David has discovered his existence and wants Mephibosheth to be brought, this crippled young man, to be brought to him, can you imagine what he's thinking? He's thinking, I'm toast. He's thinking, I'm gone. He's thinking, David's just like Saul. I'm dead. I can imagine that for year after year, after David was, was lavishly blessing and spoiling and showing grace and kindness to Mephibosheth, I can imagine year after year, Mephibosheth might be wondering, is he just keeping me around to kill me? Is he just keeping me around so that he knows where the heir to the throne might be in case he needs to get at me? But I can imagine year after year, kindness after kindness after kindness, that David's heart, or pardon me, Mephibosheth's heart would begin to melt as he realizes that this king really is truly good. I would suggest to you, you know, that you have only ever really known one king, and that king is Saul. And the problem is, is when we believe the gospel, we sort of assume that Jesus is like Saul, our former master, whatever that is. Could be addiction. Could be your own expectations for yourself. That's my Saul. My Saul is my own expectations for myself, my own assumptions of what I should accomplish. And the problem is, is I assume that, that, that Jesus is like Saul, and he's not. He's a good king. His heart for me is a, is a heart of kindness. I can just imagine, Mephibosheth, just, when, when is David going to ask me? When is he going to ask me to pay this back? When is he going to ask me to do something? When is he going to take my life? And David never did. Because he serves as a reminder of, up for us of the true king, the true and good king. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance, right? It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. I wanted to share with you, I was reading, I'll close with this, I was reading uh, C.S. Lewis, The Magician's Nephew, it's kind of his prequel to the, the Narnia books. Um, it's this beautiful allegory in there where Aslan is he's singing Narnia into, into existence. It's this allegory of the creation narrative. And in uh, this young boy, and his friends, they, they witness it. They see Narnia being, being created. And they see the power of Aslan. And the backstory, as you read the book, you realize that this young man, his mother, is on her deathbed. She's about to die. And he's burdened by this. And he sees the power of Aslan and he thinks, whatever power it is that created this land could save my mom. So he determines in that moment, I'm going to get to Aslan. I'm going to ask him if he could save my mom. And so he does. He, he, gets, he gets to Aslan as the story goes on. And he tells Aslan about his mother. And I just want to read you a quote from the book. The young boy says, but please, please, won't you, can't you give me something that will cure my mother? Up till then, he had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. Now in his despair, he looked up at its face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own in wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's, that's the boy's name, with Diggory's own, that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. My son, my son, said Aslan, I know grief. I know your grief is great. See, what's happening in this moment is that this, this lion, this creator of, of Narnia, is weeping larger tears for this boy's mother than he himself had even wept. And he realizes in that, that moment that this, this powerful figure, he'd only been looking at his claws, this powerful figure cares. He's kind. He is a kind king. And the story goes on in, uh, in allegorically, 
Aslan sends him up this mountain to go collect this fruit. This fruit will bring life or whatever to his mother. And so he goes up and climbs the mountain, whatever, gets up there. And in, the, in, the, and in this garden, this Edenic place, there's this tree of life, okay? And in the, in the garden, there is the white witch. And the white witch is there to tempt him. She's trying to tempt him not to bring the fruit back to Aslan like he said to, but just to take it straight to his mother. She said, surely he's trying to trick you, right? Surely he's trying to get you. He wants the fruit for himself. And this, this boy, Diggory, he's, he's kind of confused. He doesn't know what to do. He starts to believe her. And he starts to think, maybe I should just take the fruit back to his mother. But then in a minute, in an instant, he remembers the tears of Aslan. He remembers the goodness. And I remember he says, Surely he can't be lying. Surely he can't because he cared more deeply for my mother than even I did. He remembered the tears and it was the tears of Aslan that made him obey. I would suggest to you that the most powerful, one of the most powerful facets of the gospel is not the justice of God, the holiness of God or the contractual nature of God that he will honor his promise that he's predestined you, that he'll fall. I would suggest the most powerful, life-changing, life-altering facet of the gospel is the fact that he is kind. It's the fact that he, before the foundations of the earth, he has loved you and had affection for you, that he sought you out so that he might love you. That is life-changing. That's life-altering when you recognize that. And so what do I want you guys to do with this? I want you to see yourself as Mephibosheth this morning. I want you to see yourself uh, not as someone who has earned the grace of God, but someone who not only hasn't, but couldn't possibly have earned it with a thousand lifetimes. A thousand lifetimes that you couldn't have done enough. A thousand lifetimes and you would still have continued to rack up more sin than you could have possibly paid for. But I want you to see as the Mephibosheth that Christ has come and picked up and sat at his table, that he's given you the credit of another man's perfect life, that he's given you his name, that he, he has an eternal destiny for you. This is good news. And to the degree that you're willing to admit that you're crippled is the degree that you're willing to enjoy and give praise. The true heart of praise is a heart that has been cut by the truth of the gospel. And the true gospel brings you to a crisis point, a point where you literally have no other option. Mephibosheth had no other option. He couldn't run from David. He couldn't hide from David. He simply said yes to David, and it was the best thing he ever did. You know, if you're in this room and you haven't given your heart to Christ, he's pursuing you. And it may feel like he's pursuing you to hurt you, but I assure you, he's pursuing you because he wants to give you a seat at the table. He wants to give you a seat at the table. Dallas Willard, once again, the Christian life is what you do when you can do none else. In other words, the Christian life is what you do when you're Mephibosheth. And we all are. We are all Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. 